Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemont podcast. We are a global, open access multimedia channel dedicated to bringing you all of the latest updates in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, we'll be hearing about recent data from clinical trials of JAK inhibitors for the treatment of MPNs, as presented at the Texas MPN Workshop Second Annual Workshop and Meeting in 2021. First up is Ruben Messer of the Mays Cancer Center at the UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas. And he's going to share some real world data on the outcomes for myelofibrosis patients who are treated with JAK inhibitors. Over to you, Ruben. So I had the pleasure of discussing at the Texas MPN workshop the, the issue of you know, how early should we be using JAK inhibitors for patients with myelofibrosis. Early on in the course of testing these therapies, we started with individuals with intermediate to and high risk disease. And that was somewhat of an arbitrary decision as we did the phase one studies with ruxolitinib or fedradinib or other agents. But over time, we've learned several things. First, that myelofibrosis is a serious disease and it's serious from people even with quote, low risk to high risk. It can impact them in terms of symptoms, splenomegaly, you know, and it's really not a benign condition. Secondly, we've acquired a bunch of real-world data that is really relevant to the issue of, quote, earlier myelofibrosis. First, a lot of these patients have begun being treated uh, either on clinical trials or according to treatment-based guidelines, such as the NCCN guidelines, showing safety and efficacy for the use of, of JAK inhibitors in patients with earlier myelofibrosis. And at this point, most of that data is more ruxolitinib specific in that the clinical trial protocols for fedratinib, pacridinib, mamelodinib still have primarily been more intermediate and higher risk individuals. Another very important real world piece that we have learned is that JAK inhibitors likely impact survival. And this really raises the question about earlier use. Multiple different both real-world studies and long-term follow-ups from the comfort studies showing that patients on ruxolitinib, particularly if they have responded in terms of splenomegaly, live longer. Why do they live longer? Less debilitation, maybe less risk of progression, maybe less inflammation in the bone marrow microenvironment that may be conducive to disease progression. We've learned with recent data that fedratinib, mamelodinib, uh, likely also impact survival. And I have little doubt as we see data evolve that we will see a similar story with, with pacridinib. So JAK inhibitors impact survival. Now, what about what is early myelofibrosis? For my end, it's a pretty heterogeneous group of, of individuals. If we think about the past DIPSS or IPSS lower risk patients, we recognize that it's a heterogeneous group that may have some may have higher risk molecular features or other things that by more recent prognostic standards are really higher risk. I think that the NCCN approach of trying to differentiate patients into lower or higher risk, symptomatic versus not symptomatic is relevant. And that anyone who is symptomatic, low risk and above, likely benefits from JAK inhibition. At this point, we're still not quite there knowing whether it makes sense to treat asymptomatic lower risk patients. But I suspect as we learn more about the heterogeneity in the disease, 
we better understand why patients progress and are better able to track that with either biomarkers or other pieces, I suspect in the end, we will probably end up treating all patients with myelofibrosis over time once we have a further sense of how best to monitor that therapy. Next, we'll be hearing from Aaron Gerds of the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. Aaron, can you give us an overview of the pros and cons of the JAK inhibitor roxolitinib for the treatment of MPNs? Well, thank you uh, for inviting me and thank you for that great question. Uh, you know, definitely there are a lot of pros and cons with roxolitinib. You know, first of all, the pros. Uh, well, it was shown to be efficacious with respect to reducing spleen size and symptom burden in two large randomized prospective phase three trials. Uh, the Comfort One and Comfort Two study, and those com- those stu- the Comfort studies ultimately led to the approval of ruxolitinib for the treatment of myelofibrosis, at least intermediate and high risk myelofibrosis. Moreover, in a pooled analysis done of those two studies uh, with the long term follow up data, there was a survival advantage for patients randomized to ruxolitinib versus the other therapies, the control arms in those studies. Again, how much survival advantage? It's unclear because there was crossover in those studies, but clearly there is a survival advantage for people who take ruxolitinib. We know that ruxolitinib doesn't really kill myelofibrosis cells or eliminates them from the bone marrow, um, bone marrow or reverses scar tissue regularly. So it, 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 we often think about this as people are living longer because they are living better. Um, you know, fewer symptoms, better nutrition, smaller spleen size, that people are more active, have better performance status. There's probably also something to having lowered cytokine levels over time and the stress on the body that that can do. So I think all in all, you know, ruxolitinib has really been a, a huge sea change in the treatment of myelofibrosis. Prior to that, there were no treatments. I think the strongest evidence actually is uh, more on a population basis. Uh, and that was presented at the most recent uh, ASH annual meeting by Dr. Verstostek. Uh, and it, it, it's a real world analysis of patients with myelofibrosis before the approval of ruxolitinib and after the approval of ruxolitinib. So we saw a huge jump in survival in patients diagnosed with myelofibrosis after ruxolitinib was approved in 2011. Moreover, it wasn't just people who got ruxolitinib after the approval, their, their survival was better, but it's actually people who didn't even get ruxolitinib, their survival was better. And that means a couple of things in all likelihood. It means that uh, there's better awareness of myelofibrosis, and we're probably diagno- diagnosing many more people um, because now there is a drug to, to treat this disease with. Uh, secondly, I think it's also improved our ability to deliver supportive cares, and it's also spurred on lots of new clinical trials. So we're always offering new therapies to patients via clinical trials, trying to push those envelopes and, and get new treatments out there, and thus people are living better. So, so again, ruxolitinib has been kind of a sea change in the field. There are a lot of downsides. Uh, it doesn't work forever. Invariably, there'll be some point where the disease comes back or changes in spite of the ruxolitinib. Uh, ruxolitinib. And we know that survival after ruxolitinib for patients with myelofibrosis is very short. Um, there have been a number of analyses published showing the median survivals of well under two years, closer to one year in most patients. A lot of this has to do with Clonal evolution too. We see changes in the chromosomes or changes in the mutome and the number of mutations that there are uh, within the myelofibrosis cells. Um, that's often driving that change in progression. And at that point, uh, you know the patient's condition 
can deteriorate rapidly um, unless they undergo transplantation. So again, for those who cannot undergo transplantation, we're always looking for new therapies uh, and uh, to, to move the field forward. Following on from that, could you tell us about the potential approval of procritinib for myelofibrosis? One of the pitches we're looking to add to our repertoire uh, when we face you know, certain batters is uh, procritinib. So procritinib in the PERSIST studies, as well as the PAC-203 studies, uh, was given to patients with very low platelet counts, platelet counts less than 50,000. If you look at the package insert for both ruxolitinib and fidratinib, there is no guidance on how to dose those patients. There have been two small studies done with ruxolitinib at a very low dose in patients who have platelet counts less than 50,000, but the responses were quite modest in that, in that population. So having an agent that can supply significant JAK inhibition in thrombocytic pink patients safely is certainly something that could change the lives of those patients. For right now, there is no drug for those folks that we would standardly give, perhaps out of, outside of bruxolitinib given off-label or other clinical trials. So I think pacritinib, uh, if approved in the future, uh, based on this rolling new drug application that has been submitted, um, really could serve the need for that population that, no, that does not have a direct therapeutic as of today. Thank you, Aaron. Lastly, Abdul Rahim Yaqub from the University of Kansas is going to talk on the latest data from studies of the JAK inhibitor momelotinib for the treatment of MPNs. So this agent has been in development for several years. Um, it is most famous for the Simplify 1, Simplify 2 clicker trials, which showed activity and splenic volume reduction and activity and symptom improvement. However, they unfortunately did not meet the primary endpoints for those studies and, and did not result in approval for these agents for standard of care use. Um, we are fortunate to have excellent long-term follow-up data on, on this agent from the two studies, including patients who were treated with an intent to treat on the study, patients who were treated on a, an extended form of uh, the study for extended access, as well as patients who were treated on the control arms who were crossover to memolotinib. So with long-term follow-up maturing on all these uh, patients and all these cohorts, we have plenty of additional data to go over. So a, a compelling evidence is, is that patients who've had a splenic volume reduction on uh, therapy with memolotinib seem to have a long-term consistent and persistent response that was not lost in the majority of patients upon long-term follow-up, which is favorable and reassuring for two reasons. One is that the safety profile of memolotinib seems to be consistent with long-term use, and the efficacy profile of memolotinib seems to be durable. Uh, which uh, puts this candidate as a very favorable agent for future use for patients with myelofibrosis. In addition, we've also had a data level, and um, these also um, um, uh, show favorable outcomes for patients with myelofibrosis treated on these arms, with the um, uh, particularly the patients who are treated on memolotinib, they have not yet reached their, their median overall survival uh, on therapy, and this is after almost four and a half years of follow-up. So this, this also is encouraging and is definitely exceeds the uh, natural course of patients with myelofibrosis who are not receiving successful therapy. A more impressive results were for patients on the Simplify 2 study in which their overall survival on therapy was over 30 months, 
which is um, a, um, an ex exceptionally long number for patients who have had uh, prior JAK2 therapy and are receiving therapy in second line sitting, uh, where the bar is usually 15 to 20 months of oral survival. So a 34 to 37 month survival as reported in the Simplify 2 study was exceedingly uh, favorable. And to tease that even further, uh, upon analysis of patients who have met responses for anemia, for patients who have actually achieved transfusion independence as defined by the protocol, they had statistically significant improvement in overall survival compared to other patients in the study who have not achieved that, that secondary endpoint. So we can actually predict which patients who, who will benefit mostly from the overall survival benefit from this therapy. So to summarize, memolotinib, although did not achieve the primary importance in the first three studies, long-term follow-up has shown favorable uh, safety profile, durable responses, as well as an exceptional improvement in anemia, where some patients have actually tr achieved transfusion independence, and this has resulted in improvement in their overall survival. Uh, these compelling data um, have uh, led to a design of a specific phase three study, the Momentum study, in which patients um, received memolotinib versus uh, best supportive care. And um, those patients, um, uh, this study has a completed accrual, and we look forward to hear uh, the outcomes of the study in terms of anemia responses and quality of life improvements. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the VJ Hemont podcasts, which are available on Apple, Spotify, and Podbean. You can also follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemont and visit us online at vjhemont.com to stay up to date with all of the latest research in the field of MPNs. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next time.